Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Welcome up Doug, who is our guest speaker, and I'm so excited because, um, yeah, let's go. Uh, he leads our prayer team here, and he is just pivotal in Quest, and um, he leads a small group and just has a really cool story, so we're excited to have you. So. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hi, my name is Doug Conning, and before I start, I just want to, uh, first of all, just say a big thanks to the church, to our pastors, and to our uh, small group. For standing with us, as many of you are aware, that uh, tragically we lost our daughter this year. And we want to say a big thanks to everyone for standing with us, for providing not only prayer, but food and just special gifts. So thank you very much for standing with us. Our God is truly an ever-present help in time of trouble. We have seen that. My wife and I have both seen that very clearly during this time. Today we are continuing our summer series on stories of the Bible. Ever since attending Sunday school as a child, I fell in love with the rich and life-changing stories found in the Bible. I am distraught to know that there's an entire generation today who have never heard about these amazing stories. This conviction is what compelled me to write my first novel, The Lost Astronaut, which is a retelling of the story of Joseph in a science fiction, futuristic novel that is fun for both teenagers and adults alike. Many readers have commented how they enjoyed the novel, not even knowing that they're reading a Bible story. If you enjoy reading and would consider posting a review for my book at Amazon.com, please see Sherry out in the lobby afterwards for a free copy of of the book. Now let's open with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would be glorified during this time. I invite your Holy Spirit to come and move and minister. Have your will. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to follow along, uh, you can turn to the book of Esther. Many of today's thoughts are inspired by these two amazing books, the NIV application commentary on Esther, as well as the biblical meta narrative, One God, One Plan, One Story. Esther is a masterfully written book filled with many unexpected twists and turns. So profound and inspiring was the story that century later Adolf Hitler and the Nazis banned Jews from reading it during World War II. When we think of any epic story, understanding its backstory gives us a greater appreciation of the motives and actions of the characters. So imagine if George Lucas would have started the Star Wars saga with a scene where Darth Vader informs Luke that he is his father. Viewers would have been confused, wondering why doesn't the young lad want the strange guy in the black outfit to be his dad? And if he's his dad, why did he just cut his son's hand off? Without context, the story lacks meaning and depth. Though the story of Esther easily stands on its own merit, the more history we know, the more compelling the story becomes. So before we dive in, let's consider the history leading up to this incredible story. 
We know that in the beginning, God created mankind in his own image to reflect his likeness and glory upon the earth. But mankind rebelled against God. So he searched across humanity and selected childless Abraham and Sarah, to which he promised to birth a new nation, one whose identity was to reflect God's own image to all the nations. Centuries passed, and God raises up Moses to deliver Abraham's descendants out of slavery and instruct them how to live. He also warns them that should they not follow after God, that their enemies would defeat them and that the Lord would drive them out of the promised land and scatter them among the nations. Israel had many enemies, the very first of which was a nomadic tribe called the Amalekites, who would consistently be a thorn in Israel's flesh. No sooner would Israel be delivered from one enemy then they would once again forget God and would fall back into doing what was wise in their own eyes. After centuries of repeated foreign invasion caused by their own rebellion, the people cried out to God for a king. So Saul was crowned king in order to defend the nation by destroying the Amalekites and everything that belongs to them. However, Saul disobeyed by sparing their king Agag. God removed the kingdom from Saul and gave it to David, through which he and his son Solomon would lead into unprecedented security and prosperity. But even still, the people forgot God and their identity and continued their downward spiral into greater and greater sin. So over centuries, God sent prophet after prophet to warn them to turn back or they'd be exiled to Babylon. Finally, he sends Jeremiah, who for 23 years warns his people to no avail. His own people beat him, put him in stocks, threw him in a cistern, placed him in jail. They did everything to Jeremiah except listen to what the Lord was warning. After this, God had no option but to expel his chosen ones from the land he had given their forefathers. To which centuries later, Jesus would lament, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her, her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. As the prophecies foretold, the powerful Babylonians arrived and destroyed Jerusalem, its walls, and the temple, and carried its inhabitants over 900 miles away to Babylon. The scene is reminiscent of Adam and Eve being exiled from the Garden of Eden for their sins. So now the children of Israel are being exiled from the promised land with no one to blame but themselves. All seemed lost. The very nation that God himself birthed to bear his own image now lies in ruin, destroyed. Jerusalem, the city uh, that David danced before the Ark of the Covenant, destroyed. God's holy temple destroyed and now his chosen people dispersed throughout a pagan and foreign land all was lost but was all hope really lost had God given up entirely on his people was his plan forever thwarted by their sins many of us can quote Jeremiah 29 verse 11 by memory right for I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you to give you hope But did you know that that verse was actually written for this specific situation? If you back up one verse prior, it actually says this. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good purpose, bringing you back to this place. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come to pray. And I will listen to you and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. What a glorious promise. True to his word, after 70 years, God raises up Cyrus the Great, emperor of Persia, the largest and most powerful empire the world had ever seen to liberate the captives from Babylon. Waves of Jews began returning to a devastated Jerusalem to start the difficult process of rebuilding, while others remained dispersed across the Persian Empire. And now our story, our backstory to the book of Esther is complete. Esther chapter 1 opens as King Xerxes, this is Cyrus's grandson, he is throwing a massive party. Xerxes are perhaps translated as Hazarus in your Bibles, as a tall and handsome man, but not the effeminate demigod often portrayed by recent Hollywood movies. He was known as a womanizing, hot-tempered man who made rash decisions and had a tendency to be easily manipulated by others. Xerxes is hosting a six-month, over-the-top festival for his military leaders and nobles, all in an elaborate attempt to persuade them to join his quest to fight against Athens and revenge his father, King Darius, who was defeated years earlier. The Greek historian Herodotus, the father of history, quoted Xerxes as saying that I will lead my army through Europe to Greece so I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. I will never rest until I have taken Athens and burnt it. Xerxes goes on to promise that whosoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from him incredible rewards. And the purpose of this entire festival is to demonstrate his ability to make good on that promise. During the feasting, each guest was allowed to drink as much wine as they liked, for as Herodotus notes, it was their custom to deliberate about the gravest matters when they were drunk. And then the next day, when they were sober, if they still approved, they'd act upon it. But if not, they'd cast it aside. And whenever they had taken counsel about a matter when sober, they decide upon it when they are drunk. And now to this festival, the Peace de Resistance. Xerxes plans to parade his beautiful queen Vashti as a living trophy of his power and glory. However, the queen would have none of it and refused to go. Who would blame her for not wanting to be paraded in front of a bunch of drunken men? Outraged and embarrassed by the queen's actions, Xerxes calls together his council, for he cannot let this public defiance go unanswered. So he asks the nobles, According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? One of his advisors exaggerates the situation and instead of treating it as a private issue between husband and wife, claims that all the noble wives would now revolt due to Queen Vashti's example of disobedience. So in order to save the empire, a decree is sent proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own house and that Queen Vashti would be dethroned. The irony of this decree 
is that the king is now publicizing his own embarrassing plight and ordering a decree throughout the entire empire in which he himself could not accomplish. Between chapters 1 and chapter 2 is a span of about four very important years. During this time, Xerxes leads his massive army towards Greece. They come to a narrow strait called Hellespont that is about a mile wide, and Xerxes orders his engineers to build a, a pontoon bridge to span the strait. A fierce storm arises and shatters the bridge. So what does Xerxes do? He does what any egomaniac would. He sends his men out to whip the waters and to drop shackles as mark of enslavement. And then he has his engineers executed for missing his deadline. You thought your boss was bad. (laughs) Once finally across, the superior Persian army of nearly 150,000 soldiers advances against Greece, where they famously encountered Leonidas and his 300 men at the Battle of Thermopylae. And like his father before him, he fails to take Greece, but incurs great loss of life, not to mention the depletion of his royal treasury and all of this for his maddening thirst to avenge his father. When chapter 2 opens, King Xerxes has returned home, defeated, and according to Herodotus, is living a life of sensual overindulgence, most likely out of an attempt to self-medicate his depression. Xerxes begins to miss Queen Vashti and probably regrets his hasty decision to dethrone her. So those serving him propose a beauty pageant of sorts, a Persia got talent, where they will gather by force the most beautiful young virgins throughout the empire for which the king will sleep with and then select a winner to become his queen. This advice appealed to the king. I'm sure it did. At this point, our heroine is introduced, Esther, or Hadassah, her Jewish name. Esther's parents died when she was young and was raised by her, by her cousin Mordecai, a devout Jew. We don't know how Esther's parents died, nor do we know why Mordecai remained in Susa instead of, of returning to Jerusalem. Perhaps he felt obligated to stay and raise Hadassah in a safer environment while Jerusalem was being rebuilt. One interesting note here. Esther is the only character in our story with two names, Hadassah and Esther. It is mentioned that this is the author's way of depicting Esther as a young woman trying to live in two worlds. The Jewish world in which she was raised and the opulent world of the Persian court into which she is now thrust. These two identities will soon be in great conflict. Esther is a beautiful young woman and is taken by force and placed in the king's harem along with the other virgins. Before leaving, Mordecai instructs her to keep her Jewish identity secret. In the palace, each concubine now undergoes a year of intense Mary Kay beauty treatments to prepare them for their one special night with the king. Life in a harem would have been horrific for any young woman. For it is said that after spending one night in the king's bed, the woman was returned to the harem of concubines where she would spend the rest of her life in seclusion. She could not leave the harem to marry or return to her family. 
The woman would not even see the king again unless he asked for her by name. After her year of preparation, the time had arrived for Esther to be taken to the king. The Bible actually uses the word taken here to underscore that Esther was in a situation beyond her own control and choice. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of of the other women, so he made her his queen. For sure, this was no Cinderella, Disney princess moment for our heroine. Being raised a devout Jew, Esther would have known that marrying a Gentile, a non-Jew, was strictly prohibited. And now she was married to the most vile pagan womanizing man to ever live. We can easily imagine that she hated her circumstances and felt that her marriage violated every moral principle that Mordecai had instilled in her. And perhaps she questioned her faith in how God could allow this to happen. Now Mordecai was an administrator at the king's gate. This is where commoners would come to conduct government business. One day, as he was performing his duties, he overhears two disgruntled officers discussing a plot to assassinate the king. He immediately reports this to Esther, who informs the king and gives credit to Mordecai. And when the accusation was investigated, the two guilty officials were impaled on poles. Chapter 3 starts with a promotion of a new character, Haman the Agagite. Now, wait a second. We just read that Mordecai had heroically uncovered a vicious plot to kill the king, and we'd naturally expect him to be promoted. Instead, the antagonist to our story is introduced, Haman the Agagite. The term Agagite is derived from King Agag, remember? The Amalekite King Agag, which Saul spared, Haman is a descendant of King Agag. Today, this term Agagite is used synonymously with anyone who is anti-Semitic or an enemy of the Jews. One of the perks to being promoted to second in command is that the king ordered everyone to kneel when Haman passes. Every day as Haman goes through the king's gate, everyone knelt but Mordecai. So one of the royal officials informs Haman that Mordecai was a Jew and refused to bow. From that moment on, every time Haman passed through, he noticed Mordecai standing. And this enraged Haman. But he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. So he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole empire. Haman concocts a lie to manipulate the king by saying... There's a certain people. Notice here, he doesn't actually say who these people are. There's a certain people that are dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. 10,000 talents was the equivalent of 300 tons of silver. While Haman was wealthy, it is doubted he had that much wealth, but would inevitably acquire it through taking it from the Jews he planned to kill. Remember that royal treasury that had been depleted for the war against Greece? 
That is why Haman is now making his appeal. But the king tells Haman to keep his money as he believes Haman has his best interest in mind. Again, the king is easily manipulated by his counsel. So he gives his signet ring to Haman, which gives Haman the full authority of the throne. Haman sends out a decree with the king's seal that now becomes irrevocable. In both the book of Esther and the book of Daniel, this topic regarding the irrevocability of a Persian king is, uh, is discussed. You may recall that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den when Xerxes' father, Darius, was manipulated by advisors to decree that praying was forbidden in an attempt to trap Daniel. In order to determine now which day this execution would take place, Haman throws what is called a purr or a lot, similar to us tossing dice or pulling the short straw. Even in chance, God demonstrates his providence in this story by causing the lot to fall upon the very last possible day of their year. Immediately, Haman goes ahead and sends out this ominous decree to all the corners of the empire to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day and to plunder their goods. After this, Haman sits down with the king to celebrate by drinking. All of the power of the Persian Empire is about to come down on the Jewish people. In C.S. Lewis's novel, Prince Caspian, there's a great scene in which young Lucy asks Aslan why he didn't come save them like the last time. To which Aslan replies, things never happen the same way twice. So in our story, God is about to do a new thing. For into this very male-dominated, testosterone-driven Persian society, God raises up not a mighty warrior, nor a great statesman, but a seemingly insignificant young woman to now carry out his master plan. Chapter 4. Upon hearing of Haman's decree, Mordecai rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and goes into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. This was a common ancient practice demonstrating grief. Esther hears about Mordecai's strange behavior and appearance, and instead of inquiring why he was grieving, she immediately delivers new clothing for him. Nothing like a new set of clothing to cheer you up, right? Mordecai refuses the clothing and informs her servant of the evil decree and instructs Esther to go immediately to the king to plead for mercy. Interestingly, this would be the last time in our story that Mordecai would instruct Esther because the tide is beginning to change. Esther replies, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. Esther's fear here of approaching the king was not exaggerated. First, under Persian law, no one, including the queen, could enter the king's presence without being invited. If they entered and the king did not extend his scepter, 
that person would be put to death. Secondly, the king's affections towards Esther seems to have cooled down. Esther knew that her predecessor, Queen Vashti, had been dethroned for dissatisfying Xerxes. Perhaps given the state of things, it would be more expedient for the king to just allow her death. Then Esther receives the following harsh rebuke from a man who had been like a father to her. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Then Mordecai makes the most profound statement in the entire book. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. The phrase, for such a time as this, is the full culmination of the entire history that has built up until this very moment. That into the tragedies of Esther's life, the masterful providence of our God was working His will behind the scenes. It is said that a grand chess master can calculate 15, maybe 20 moves ahead. But think about the number of moves God made over the years to position Esther here at this exact time. What will really bake your noodle is when you consider that our all-knowing God was putting his chess pieces of salvation into place before the Jews even knew that the, that the threat existed. Imagine that. God's plan for saving his people was put into place before they even knew they needed saving. We don't see God here scrambling to come up with a solution. He's already working behind the scenes to have Vashti removed so that he can elevate Esther into a position to save his people. How amazing is our God. Esther now has to decide her identity. Is she just Hadassah, the young girl who is hiding in her Jewish identity? Or is she just Esther, the queen of a pagan empire? In The Lion King, young Simba is told by his father to remember. I can't do that scene justice. To remember who he is and to take his rightful place. Esther now finds the courage to forgo her fear and enter into her identity as both a Jew and a queen of Persia. The tide has turned. And now Esther, the queen, sends Mordecai instructions to go gather together all the Jews and fast for me. Then I will go to the king even though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. Esther orders everyone to pray. It has been said that when you do not know what you should do, that's exactly when you know what you should do. And that is to pray. Chapter 5. On the third day, Esther arises and clothes herself in her royal robes, which represents the fullness of her identity as queen. She boldly enters the king's court, knowing full well that if the king doesn't extend his scepter, her life is forfeited. Xerxes sees his queen and extends the golden scepter, which is the very symbol of his authority as king. By Xerxes extending the scepter, and Esther reaching out and touching it, her safety in his presence is now guaranteed. 
Likewise, had God not extended the cross of Jesus Christ to the world, all would die in his holy presence. Jesus arose on the third day, guaranteeing safety to all who reach out by faith to touch that cross-shaped scepter. The king asked Queen Esther, what is your request? For the first time in our story, the king addresses Esther as Queen Esther. Her transformation into her identity is now complete. And the king offers her half the kingdom, which was a common expression made by kings for those that pleased him. Esther's strategy here is absolutely brilliant. Instead of immediately pressing her case against Haman and demanding that the king take action, she invites him to a banquet given in his honor, which stirs up intrigue in the heart of the king and prepares him to receive her petition. And, oh, by the way, if it pleases the king, please bring Haman along. So the king and Haman hurry off to an elaborate banquet. And after drinking and dining, and while the king was still high in spirits, he asked the queen to name her petition. Esther asked that they return tomorrow for yet another day of feasting. And then she would reveal her request. Like a skilled fisherman patiently reeling in her catch, Esther is masterfully stoking the intrigue in her king's heart as to what her request could possibly be. A palace, clothing, jewelry, or perhaps a temple to honor her God. Haman leaves the party in high spirits, but who should he run into? Mordecai the Jew, who neither rises nor shows any fear in Haman's presence. In spite of the night's wonderful festivities, the food and the wine, Haman's heart is filled with rage. He hurries home and gloats to his wife and friends that he was the only noble nobleman that Queen Esther invited and that he is returning tomorrow for a second day of festivities. But then his heart turns heavy as he recalls Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Attempting to console him, his wife and friends suggest he builds a pole 75 feet high and asks the king to have Mordecai impaled. Then afterwards... He can go to the feast and be happy. This consoles Haman's heavy heart, as apparently nothing prepares you for festivities like a good impaling. That night, the king could not sleep. And this was long before all-night infomercials. So Xerxes has his servants read, along, read aloud the history of his rule. Nothing like a bit of history to make you sleepy. While reading, they discovered that Mordecai had never been rewarded for exposing the assassination attempt on the king. Oh, the travesty that this was. Kingships are built entirely upon the loyalty of one's subjects. This astronomical oversight had to be rectified immediately. So the king inquires who is in the court. And as God's perfect timing would have it, Haman had just arrived to request permission to kill Mordecai. The king asks Haman to come in, and then he asks, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? In his pride, Haman thinks that the king is referring to himself, as surely there would be no one else in the entire empire more deserving than Haman. And since he had little need for wealth or power, he answers what he desired most, to be honored and glorified. O king, let this man you want to honor 
have the king's royal robe placed upon his shoulder and place him on the king's personal horse. And with the royal crest on his head, lead him throughout the city, declaring, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. What a brilliant idea. So the king orders Haman to go at once and do this for Mordecai the Jew. Now, wait a second. I thought you were talking about me. Can you imagine the shock on Haman's face when he found out that the king was referring to Mordecai? This same Mordecai who Haman planned to impale atop a 75-foot tall pole was now perched atop the king's own royal steed. And what's worse, Haman himself was leading the procession and declaring publicly, this is what is done for the man who the king delights in. This is good stuff. Chapter 7. God now has all his chess pieces in place and is about to call checkmate on the devil and Haman. The king and Haman arrive again for the second day of feasting. For Haman, he hoped the festivities would serve as a distraction from his embarrassing ordeal of parade and Mordecai throughout the city. And the king, his curiosity has now been fully piqued regarding what his queen's petition is. So after rushing through his meal, Xerxes asks, Queen Esther, what is your petition? Nothing could have prepared him, let alone Haman, for what came next. The queen tearfully responds, If I have found favor with you, grant me my life. And spare my people, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. A pin drop could have been heard as shock fills the room. Esther's tactic to not mention Haman serves well to raise righteous indignation in the king, whose face is turning various shades of red as outrage fills his inmost being and his blood boils in holy righteousness. He asks, Who is he? Who would dare to threaten such a thing? The adversary and enemy, as Esther responds, is this vile Haman. The king stands up in his rage, sets his wine down, and goes out into the palace garden. Leaving his wine glass behind is significant, for we recall the celebration of drinking that occurred after Haman sent out his decree. Also, we know that Xerxes was well known for excessive drinking since his humiliating defeat and it's probably easier for Haman to ever masterfully manipulate when the king is high in spirit and intoxicated. So watching the king now set down his wine had to plant an image so powerful in Haman's mind of the gravity of his situation. Oh, This did not bode well for Haman, and he knew it. So he has but one option here, and that is to throw himself at the mercy of the queen. Persian royal protocol would have required Haman to leave the presence of the queen when the king left the room. Furthermore, protocol prohibited him from being within seven steps of the queen. But this is life and death. So Haman throws himself at Esther, who is reclining on a sofa. The irony here is that Haman wanted to kill Mordecai for refusing to bow before him. And now 
Haman was bowing before the Jewish Queen Esther, pleading for his own life. As fate would have it, the king returns from the garden. At this exact moment of Haman's impropriety, he declares, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me? Then one of the servants informs the king of the 75-foot-tall pole that Haman had erected for Mordecai. And in the final irony, Haman is impaled upon the very pole he built for Mordecai. And now our conclusion. That very day, all of Haman's estate, his wealth and petition, was given to Mordecai, including the king's royal signet ring. And because royal decrees were irrevocable, Mordecai penned a new decree that empowered the Jews to come together and defend themselves against the planned attack. When the fateful day came, throughout the empire, the Jews successfully defended themselves with the help of the Persian officials. Then Mordecai instructed the Jews to celebrate and to observe the Feast of Purim, the casting of lots, which is celebrated to this day all over the world to commemorate God's protection against their enemy, Haman the Agagite. So in this story, who do you identify with? Do you identify with Israel, who was continually sinning and falling into the same old pattern time and time again and couldn't break free? Or perhaps like the Jews, exiled, you feel that God can never forgive you for your sins. Or perhaps you identify with Esther's insecurity of self-image because you dwell in a culture where appearance is supreme and have listened to the devil's lie about yourself. Or maybe like Esther, you fear approaching God's throne out of a fear of finding out what he really thinks about you. You see, today our culture has lost its way and forgotten who we are. We struggle with identity more than any other item because we use a wide array of things like our appearance, jobs, wealth, education, political affiliation, and sex to define us. But when we accept Christ, we forsake our imperfect identity for his perfect identity so that we can boldly go before God's throne and reflect his image to this earth. When we begin to see God as he sees us, it changes everything. But the devil will do everything in his power to keep you from believing God's identity for yourself. Why? Because he knows this will make you dangerous. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your identity. May we go forth today walking in the identity that you have for us. For any who is struggling to embrace their identity, I pray, Lord, that they would arise like Queen Esther, that they would put on that royal robe, and that they would embrace the identity that you have for their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, 
please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.